Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Lolloping on the waves and braiding her tresses, she seemed. Having that gift still. To be to exist, to sum it all up in the moment as she passed. Turned, caught her scarf in some other woman's dress, unhitched it, laughed, all with the most perfect ease and air of a creature floating in its element. And she heads out of Westminster into the city of London and suddenly she feels like she's in a a different world, a kind of alien world where the Dalloways don't normally go. It's showing how a soldier might convey his distress, but also how the author, Virginia Woolf, is conveying her sense of psychosis to the general public. Mrs Dalloway said she would buy the flowers herself. That's the opening line of Mrs Dalloway by Virginia Woolf. When it was published in 1925, Woolf noted in her diary that it was selling surprisingly well. And within a month of publication, it had sold more copies than Jacob's Room, her previous novel, had sold in a year. It's an extraordinary book about time and memory, love and death, sanity and insanity, the beauty of flowers and the pain of existence. And it has become a landmark work of early 20th century modernist fiction. Hello and welcome to On the Road with Penguin Classics, the podcast that takes a stroll around the world's favourite books. I'm Henry Elliott, the author of the Penguin Classics book, and in this episode we're going to haunt the streets of Westminster in London, where Wolfe was inspired to set Mrs Dalloway. We recorded this episode way back in 2019, in a world before Covid and social distancing, as you'll hear. Very near the beginning of the book, we meet Mrs. Dalloway on the curb of Victoria Street, the busy road that connects Victoria train station with the Palace of Westminster. And that's where I'm standing now. In 1923, when the book is set, there would have still been horse-drawn carriages going up and down this street. It looks now, when you look down it, a bit like a kind of canyon of steel and glass, lots of big, mostly government uh, buildings down each side. This book takes place on a Wednesday in the middle of June and it interweaves the experiences and the memories of two main characters, Clarissa Dalloway and a First World War veteran, Septimus Smith. But it opens with this vision of Clarissa Dalloway who we meet on the curb of Victoria Street and uh, what better place to introduce our guest on today's episode. I'm delighted that Alexandra Harris has been able to join us. Hi Alex. Hello, it's very nice to be here. Professor Alexandra Harris of the University of Birmingham has written many books. She was the author of Romantic Moderns which won the Guardian First Book Award in 2010 Uh, and since then you wrote the gorgeous Weatherland which is a beautiful Um, overview and celebration of weather in British art and literature. And in 2011, Thames and Hudson published your biography of Virginia Woolf. So I can't think of a better person to be joining us today. Thank you, Henry. I wonder, Alex, could you introduce her to our listeners? Who who is this woman in the book? So what's extraordinary about this book is that we're not allowed to say Clarissa is this or is that, and she won't say that of anyone else either. Uh, But 
For the time being, we can have in our minds an idea of a woman in her early 50s uh, who's been through illness, who is vulnerable, sensitive, with a terrific empathy for people around her and who, importantly, loves life and loves London. Fabulous, fabulous. The reason that Mrs Dalloway is on the curb here is that she's just walked out of her home nearby off to buy the flowers for her party. So let's retrace her steps to find where that home might have been. We bear left. Described it as a Queen Anne building, so 1722. Yeah, we're not too, not too far. The hall of the house was cool as a vault. Mrs. Dalloway raised her hand to her eyes, and as the maid shut the door too, and she heard the swish of Lucy's skirts, she felt like a nun who has left the world and feels fold round her the familiar veils and the response to old devotions. The cook whistled in the kitchen. She heard the click of the typewriter. So we're now turning into a street called Barton Street. It's a really beautiful red brick street, very old houses. We're passing a blue plaque to where Lawrence of Arabia, T.E. Lawrence, lived. We're kind of surrounded by blue plaques of the good and the great. Lord Reith here. Oh, it feels like we've just stepped through one of these doors around us and entered that hushed world of Mrs Dalloway's home. And in some ways, this home on a street that could have been Barton Street feels to me like, in some ways, the centre of gravity of this novel. Mrs Dalloway issues out of it at the beginning but is drawn back to it. Uh, her old friend Peter Walsh, who's been living in India, is drawn to her in this house. The whole book culminates in the party which is held in this house. But in contrast to Barton Street, there's another presence, another location in the book which, which we return to again and again in, in Clarissa's memory. And that is uh, the house of her childhood, Borton, uh, in the countryside. And Alex, I wonder, how would you describe the significance of Borton in this novel? Even the creak of a hinge in her London house brings up the memory of a door opening at this long-ago house, Borton. And we get this return to the moment in Clarissa's life when everything was to be decided... What she particularly associates with Borton is the memory of a woman, Sally Seaton, who electrifies her. And Clarissa can bring back up into her middle-aged self that feeling of the thrill of knowing that Sally Seaton was downstairs in this house. And Wolf manages to run those together, as our memories are run together with our, with our present. So as we are just there in, in the present of London, and we have how fresh, how calm, stiller than this, of course, the air was in the early morning. Like the flap of a wave, the kiss of a wave, chill and sharp. And yet, for a girl of 18, as she was then, solemn, feeling as she did, standing there at the open window, that something awful was about to happen. It's only on rereading this book, actually, that I realised how often we hear that there's this premonition yes, in the air. That something dangerous on its way. Exactly, and there's the explicit violence of war remembered and, and yes. coming back. But there's this also this danger of starting out on life, of making an irrevocable decision. Right. Um, and so ecstasy is linked up very closely to dread, yes. to fear. I love that passage you just read, and it is amazing isn't it but that's on the very first page of the book and it prefigures so much that we're going to experience in the book the you know the danger of being on the threshold of a window that's a very specific reference to a to a dramatic event later in the book talking about Borton and these kind of uh, memories and, and previous lives of the characters in the books reminds me of a little mention she makes in her diary while she was working on Mrs Dalloway. She, she had what she called a breakthrough she sort of had worked out um, an element of how this book was going to work and she wrote, this was in August 1923, I dig out beautiful caves behind my characters. I think that gives exactly what I want, humanity, humour, depth. The idea is that the caves shall connect and each comes to daylight at the present moment. And I think there's so much in that, isn't there? These kind of hollowed out, but they're caves, so they're only visible if you kind of 
enter them and explore them and you know in the sort of Freudian sense underground and they're caves where you might get lost but they're also caves which are probably quite spectacular and, and sort of glistening. Yes and almost as if one's walking across a landscape and you might come upon the entrance to a mine and then slip down into it uh, we come upon in the book just tiny things the squeak of a hinge or the chiming of the clock and or a street sign and it opens out this whole um, underworld of, of emotion of association um, and it really affects the way that time moves in this in this book because uh, we're not just moving moment by moment through a present Absolutely. day although we always feel that this day is going on and passing as the the clock chimes the hour but there's also this underground sort of time which stretches and suddenly contracts Clarissa will embark on a, uh, a luxuriant, wandering, digressive memory of her girlhood, of coming down the stairs very slowly and wonderfully and time seeming to stop uh, just before she meets Sally Seaton. And it's one of those pauses on the threshold where you just hold time there in that moment. And then the novel will break it and bring us up into uh, taxis passing and cartloads and people shouting. And, and all of that is part of the rhythm. We keep talking about what happens on this day. But let's emphasise a very simple fact about this book, which is that it takes place on a, on a single day. And that's a, a very bold decision uh, to suggest that a single day is enough, is adequate plot, as it were, for a novel, for a great novel, with a novel with huge ambitions. OK, well, rather like Mrs Dalloway at the beginning, should we issue out of Barton Street and head, follow her on her walk across the parks and towards Bond Street? <laughs> We've just moved back into Dean's yard, the rather stunning leafy square just behind Westminster Abbey and we're surrounded by the the buildings of Westminster School and some of the students from that school uh, moving between lessons and there's a procession of war veterans coming towards us wearing poppies and we're not far from Remembrance Sunday uh, as we're recording this and of course what we're commemorating is both wars but the First World War which is such a presence in Mrs. Dalloway. It's a real shadow that's kind of on the periphery, but there are people close to Clarissa who've been badly affected by the war. And of course, one of the main characters, Septimus Smith, is suffering terribly because of it. And so to see these medals going past, it's very moving. When we started drafting this novel, she made the first scene a procession of people to the cenotaph. And Wolf, I think, is someone who's always trying to find new ways of thinking about history. Are we just the same people in different clothes and actually these veterans are all wearing the same clothes yes, I mean we're yes. not so much has changed yes it's true she gave a lecture in 1924 which she called character in fiction and later published under the title Mr Bennett and Mrs Brown and I think she almost formulates this kind of project in that uh, essay when she says that in the last few years all human relations have shifted those between masters and servants, husbands and wives, parents and children. And when human relations change, there is at the same time a change in religion, conduct, politics and literature. We must reconcile ourselves to a season of failures and fragments. We are trembling on the verge of one of the great ages of English literature. You know, she's writing that just two years after her friend T.S. Eliot published The Wasteland, just two years after... James Joyce's Ulysses was published, which she kind of grudgingly admired and thought of publishing at one time. And, and the fact is, you, anyone writing literature after the early 1920s cannot do it without responding or reacting against those works that were being written at the time. She's bold and she's rebellious. She insists that each generation has to reinvent the novel for its needs. And she thinks that the 1920s consciousness needs a different form to that which was invented by uh, her predecessors, who are older, more established novelists like Arnold Bennett, who had just attacked uh, the younger generation uh, in, a, in an essay and said that Mrs Wolfe 
wasn't terribly good at getting character. And she writes straight back at him. She doesn't just sit down and take it. And she defends her method, which is a method in which she wants to, to suggest that, that characters are utterly elusive. And she says we're all the time making each other up. So we're fiction as well as fact, and we can't yes. tell those things apart. Um, and the whole premise of this novel, which brings together Clarissa and Septimus, two completely different sorts of people, the premise suggests that they must have something to do with each other. Right, right. They don't meet, they don't know each other, they don't have a past in common, and yet they are connected by forms of empathy and Clarissa will get to a point where she imagines what Septimus must feel yeah and actually that makes me think it's such a good book to be discussing at this very moment because there's so much of uh, populist politics we're listening to at the moment where the rhetoric is all about boxes and labels and and actually this book makes you a more humane person I think through reading it that project of trying to understand another human being could, n- could never have been more important as it is now. So we're just recrossing Victoria Street now. Just briefly, it reminds me of that moment in the novel when Clarissa's daughter, Elizabeth Dalloway, um, sets out from Barton Street to visit the stores with her tutor, Miss Kilman. And of course, the stores at the time would have been this large department store known as the Army and Navy stores. And um, that is now the House of Fraser on uh, Victoria Street, that big department store. And I've had, they go and have a, uh, an, a chocolate eclair in the cafe in the book. And I've, I've been in that quite miserable cafe down in the basement of the House of, House of Fraser. Um, so I can picture that very clearly. Well, I would normally be hoping that we would go and have a, an eclair, but the truth is that it's the most miserable scene in the book. There's something so claustrophobic and cloying about this tea shop. So I'm actually quite glad we're Happy not going Happy to pass in. it by. OK, let's carry on to St James's Park around the corner. How strange on entering the park, the silence, the mist, the hum, the slow-swimming happy ducks the pouched birds waddling. It's exactly like the moment in the book when Mrs Dalloway enters the park. And actually, I mean, the, the pouched birds, of course, are the pelicans of St James's Park. I can't actually see any right now, but um, they still live here and they're fed every morning. As we walk through the park, Alex, how was it that you first encountered Virginia Woolf? And how did she become such a, a major figure in your life? I think I read her almost by mistake to start with. <laughs> I, I picked up the, uh, the 1990s version of the Penguin Classic of To the Lighthouse and it had uh, a watercolour painting of the seaside on the front and I thought it was going to be something like Rosamund Pilcher. Um, <laughs> I thought it was going to be romantic um, and I read and read and read and for a while I thought there's no plot nothing seems to be happening what is what is this all about and yet I was absolutely needing to turn the pages and it gave me a feeling that no other book had ever given me and I spoke what I was 16 then and then I read the rest of Virginia Woolf very very quickly and what I responded to I think was the sense of making patterns from life, making shapes, finding forms for absence, finding ways of talking about what you don't feel. Mm. Um, this is terribly sentimental, but I, I, I remember a friend made me my 18th birthday cake and it's had on it iced a quotation from Virginia Woolf, oh, which brilliant. is, arrange whatever pieces come your way. Oh, fantastic. And I hope I'm still putting the fragments together. <laughs> Alice, that's amazing. Um, But then, of course, as you grow up, you become a more rational and self-conscious reader. So I started understanding what she meant to other people, uh, particularly actually realising how important she'd been for feminists, understanding how important she'd been for left-wing politics, which is now important for me. And I turned from being a, a... a keen undergraduate to writing my thesis on her and I'm wanting to meet everybody who also felt strongly about her, which has been one of the great joys of, of my life. 
and also passing it on. Just while we've stopped here and we're near the Mall, I wonder if uh, this is a good moment to talk about one of those uniting uh, motifs in the book, which is uh, the moment when a plane uh, suddenly appears in the sky above London and starts writing what we take to be a, a, an advertisement in, in kind of clouds out of the back of the plane in the sky above these people. And several characters in the book look up and see this plane and we you know it's spelling out a few letters no one can quite see what it's saying there's a t (laughs) exactly maybe it's toffee maybe it's (laughs) there's a k turns out to be cremo Cremo. um what an image for language as this somehow public property um and here's wolf the writer writing in air as it as it were um and it's also funny you know i mean it's 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 toffee there's nothing right and and i suppose there might have been a moment where it's a godlike figure looking down on us, able to see the whole view across London of every class, every type of person. But no, now it's just a plain advertising trophy. Um, and so it's sort of banal, but also wonderful. I think it's also worth saying that um, that plane allows her to pull off some very cinematic shots. And, and cinema, of course, was quite a new medium in, in the early 1920s, but it seems like Wolfe was very much influenced by it in this novel. And there's that wonderful description of the plane flying right across London, and you're, you're zoomed right out, and you see a little island of the city of London, and you see Greenwich, and then suddenly it zooms right into a, into a wood, and there's a thrush banging a snail shell on the stone. And it's just, wow, that is such an effect to go from that expansive view down to such a tiny and violent little detail. I would recommend having a look at Wolf's essays on flying. She turns out to be a great fan of, of aeroplanes. Uh, writes a great description of looking down on, on London in an essay called Flying Over London. Um, and, and we're all familiar with it now, of course, so the, the different perspective it, it gives you. Um, however, as we learn at the end of the essay, she never actually took off. It was all in imagination. <laughs> and if there's ever a writer who has a flying imagination who actually launches from a runway with a single sentence it's Virginia Woolf fabulous fabulous we go through the arcade aha here we go so we're we're standing on the pavement of Piccadilly and we're outside Hatchard's bookshop which proudly advertises that it's been a bookseller since 1797. This is the oldest bookshop in London, but still selling. And, uh, and there's a very memorable moment in the novel when Clarissa Dalloway uh, stops outside and she looks in through the window and, and sees mostly um, rather kind of shallow-sounding books like Jorrocks, Jaunts and Jollities and Soapy Sponge and these funny titles. Uh, but there's one book uh, displayed open which has a phrase which then proceeds to echo through the rest of a novel. So let's, let's go inside and see if we can find that very book that she'd have seen in the window. Francis, hi, it's Henry. Hello, thank you so much for your email. What was she dreaming as she looked into Hatchard's shop window? What was she trying to recover? What image of white dawn in the country as she read in the book spread open... Fear no more the heat of the sun, nor the furious winter's rages. So we've, we've, we've settled uh, in front of the shelves of Shakespeare and uh, Alex has plucked down a, a copy of Cymbeline in the, in the Penguin Classics It wasn't edition. in the window, this is the problem. So True. we've had to come and find we've a copy find of Shakespeare's late play, his romance of early Britain called Cymbeline. Mm-hmm. Um, and... In the novel, it's clearly spread open in the window and Clarissa just catches sight of the phrase Fear no more the heat of the sun, nor the furious winter's rages. It's just plucked out of its context and goes floating for all to catch through the streets of of London in 1923. I mean, it actually comes from a moment in in Cymbeline when a funeral song is being sung over the body of the apparently dead princess Imogen. And it's something which links people because we amazingly find that Septimus... Septimus uses it, yes. Septimus has this same line, um, which is not as incredible as it might sound because 
Shakespeare simply is in these people's He permeates the culture, minds. yes. He permeates the culture. And we all share bodies of, of knowledge. But we needn't think about this as high literature coming into educated people's lives. I think what Wolf really wants to get at is a sense of common culture. Right. It's another of these invisible connections, like the plane that people can see in the sky, like the sound of the clock chiming. And we all share a common pool of quotations and, yes. and references. Yes, and and Shakespeare is the great figure for that, I suppose, because he is the people's poet and uh-huh. he's also writing about kings. And, and there's this way that this novel wants to bring together, push, crush together the experiences which are universal as well as absolutely distinct to each of us. Alex, that's so brilliantly put. Well, we're not far now from uh, Bond Street, one of the most famous streets in London, and one of the short stories that Wolfe wrote before she embarked on Mrs Dalloway, the novel, was called Mrs Dalloway on Bond Street. And it's an opening scene, and it's one of the most memorable scenes in the book, is Mrs Dalloway walking up Bond Street. So let's head over there now. Bond Street fascinated her. Bond Street, early in the morning in the season. Its flags flying, its shops. No splash, no glitter. One roll of tweed in the shop where her father had bought his suits for 50 years. A few pearls. Salmon on an ice block. We're standing at the end of Bond Street now and the flags are still flying. If you look up the street, every shop has a flag flying outside it. And the sun is out and there's the a sun sense is out. of the air and the energy. But it has, it has changed a bit. I mean, these yes. are really designer shops You can probably now. still buy pearls and suits, yes, but, but not salmon on an ice block. Exactly. I don't think you'd see the roll of tweed. No, no, you're right. <laughs> and, and as for no splash, no glitter, looking up the street, it is all splash and glitter, isn't it? There's shiny lights, there's gold outside, Dolce & Gabbana over there. And we're going to have to get past the doorman to go into any of these shops. That's true, that's true. But Wolf was a great walker all her, all her life, and walking in London was one of her, her favourite adventures. Um, but also walking in Cornwall as a, as a girl, walking, um, walking in Sussex, where she also had a, had a house. And the, the imagery of, of walking gets into so much of her thinking. She's talking about reading, for example. She'll, she'll be following the paths that lie through the pages of books. Um, she'll think of all of history unfolding like a path across a, a landscape. And, and you know, Bond Street is so open. It's the great avenue of, of, of London. And yet sometimes her characters will slip down into the side roads, yes. uh, which equate to more secretive thoughts, more uh, surprise discoveries. And you know, I think she's always so responsive to those rhythms of topography as much as imagination. Absolutely, absolutely. There's that great moment where she says, uh, I love walking in London, said Mrs Dalloway. Really, it's better than walking in the country. <laughs> and I do know what she means because you get so much sensory input when you're walking around a city like London, don't you? Every street you turn down, there's a new vista, a new site. There's the whole world on show in London, isn't there? So we've, we've stopped outside 42 New Bond Street. I was hoping to buy some flowers. Well, you might well have, because in 1923, uh, this was the storefront of a florist and fruiterer to the king, G. Adam & Co., which Wolfe transmutes in the novel into a shop called Mulberry's, the florist. Now, it's a kind of very high-end homeware store called Loewe, uh, this is their flagship London store, and there's some really sort of remarkable handbags. I'm quite mesmerised by these coats, and in fact, yes. there, are, there are two maquettes here, and actually I think one looks like Virginia Stratford West, and one looks like Virginia Woolf, like and they've Wolf. both You're got these right. brilliant coats. You're so right. <laughs> that's hilarious. Yeah. I think she was very brilliant. interested in clothes, and how we try things on, and how clothes give you new character. Yeah. The frock consciousness, she called it. I love it. So, uh, of course, that famous opening line of this book, Mrs. Alloway said she would buy the flowers herself. This is where she comes to buy the flowers. And it's one of the moments where the sort of sensory overload of this shop 
takes her back to other places. These moments of, of bringing nature, bringing wildness somehow into the city, I think, are very strong. And, and you can feel Clarissa's kind of delight in having that breath of, of nature. Absolutely. It's, it's a very rural novel, for a London novel. Yes, you're right. <laughs> it's paths right. out to the countryside are, are you're deep right. there. Now, of course, it's when Virginia Woolf is in Mulberry's that one of the cinematic cuts happens in the book. There's a sudden noise. A car backfires on the street out where we're standing here. And uh, this noise suddenly takes us outside the shop. And one of the people who hears the noise is uh, the war veteran Septimus Smith. Alex, could you talk a little bit about how Virginia Woolf juxtaposes these two characters in the book. We've seen the vitality of the London that Clarissa sees and then we see a form of pressure and horror, of rawness, of the gaping wounds on the pavement um, through the eyes of, of Septimus who is just about 30. Um, he was in a stable job before he went off to the First World War. Um, he fought in the trenches. He was promoted to being an officer. He's come back. He was one of the survivors. But he hasn't altogether survived intact. And all through the novel, we're allowed to see those opposing points of view, but they're never allowed to stand in absolute opposition because Septimus feels the joy and the lift of it just as Clarissa feels the horror and Wolf was determined that she would write the sane and the insane side by side right. and never separate them and when Clarissa hears that explosion of the, the passing car it excites her curiosity um, there's a sense of being at the centre of London and is this, is this the king passing um, and, uh, and she also has this sense of the rippling energy of the place and uh, almost like a, a, a seismometer measuring the sort of little earthquake tremors that run through the place but for Septimus totally different yes so he so he's on the street arm in arm with his wife Retzia and this car backfiring to him sounds like a gunshot and he's right you, you can tell that he's taken straight back to the trenches and the first world war and his wife Retzia senses that and she um, immediately she thinks what can we do to sort of bring him back to reality and thinks let's head to the closest area of uh, open sky open grass and she thinks of Regent's Park which is north of where we're standing now so let's follow, let's follow those two. Let's head up to Regent's Park and uh, we can talk a little bit more about Septimus and Retzia Smith. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com.
Okay, here we are, number 88. Street up to Regent's Park, but it, it's a good excuse to talk about that other bit of the book. Do you remember when uh, Elizabeth catches the omnibus? Absolutely, and she's she's delighted to be free from the stuffy army and navy cafe. Right, right. Um, and the fresh air is delicious, and then she summons all her independence and boards the omnibus and feels she feels the bus is like this pirate ship going it's a, it's, full sail up Whitehall. It's fabulous, isn't it? You, have you got that bit there? It had been so stuffy in the Army and Navy stores, and now it was like riding to be rushing up Whitehall. And to each movement of the omnibus, the beautiful body and the fawn-coloured coat responded freely, like a rider, like the figurehead of a ship. For the breeze slightly disarrayed her. We haven't got the breeze, Henry. That's true. I, yes, I haven't arranged it. <laughs> the heat gave her cheeks the pallor of white-painted wood, and her fine eyes, having no eyes to meet, gazed ahead, blank, bright, with the staring, incredible innocence of sculpture. So we're seeing her from the outside. We're suddenly seeing her as the yes. sculpture at the front of a ship. Isn't that amazing? It's a, it's a ship going up Whitehall with the 18-year-old Elizabeth painted on the front of it. This is astounding the more you read it. I love that. There's also, when Elizabeth's on the bus, there's this great sense of freedom. And then there's a moment where she almost oversteps a boundary. And it's interesting that nearly the whole of this novel is contained within the bounds of the city of Westminster. It doesn't venture out of that area very much. This is one of the moments when it does, and Elizabeth is on the bus as it goes up Whitehall. It heads down the Strand and on into Fleet Street, and she heads out of Westminster into the city of London, and suddenly she feels like she's in a a different world, a kind of alien world where the Dalloways don't normally go. It was quite different here from Westminster, she thought, getting off at Chancery Lane. It was so serious, it was so busy... In short, she would like to have a profession. She would become a doctor. Well, yeah, so she moves, into a, she moves into a different geography and it opens a world to her. And there's a moment of slight sort of panic when she's off the bus and doesn't quite know where she is and does she carry on as far as St Paul's and then she loses confidence and, and heads back, back to She must go home, she must dress for dinner. She's yeah. caught again back in that old Victorian uh, ritual of dressing for, oh, the for dinner. The daily cycle, That's yeah. the, the clock time the routine time yes. striking through into her independent adventure, I suppose. Absolutely, absolutely. Regent's Park, the long straight walk, the little house where one bought air balls to the left, an absurd statue with an inscription somewhere or other. Regent's Park had changed very little since he was a boy, except for the squirrels. We're standing on the Broad Walk in Regent's Park, a really beautiful wide avenue of trees, uh, which looks absolutely stunning today in these orangey autumnal colours. And it's here that Septimus and Retzia settle after the, he's had his fright on Bond Street. They sit on one of these benches which are lining the avenue. Now, through the trees, I can see a little cafe, and I think we're going to meet someone who will be able to tell us more about that. Well, it's an absolute pleasure to be joined now by Professor Edgar Jones, who is uh, the Professor in the History of Medicine and Psychiatry at King's College, London. Edgar, you've written extensively on shell shock and the psychological effects of war, and you're, you're a leading authority in this field. And thank you very much for joining us today. So I thought I'd just read um, one of the descriptions of, mm -hmm. of Septimus's symptoms. So Wolf writes about him at home with his wife, Retzia, he lay on the sofa and made her hold his hand to prevent him from falling down. Down, he cried, into the flames, and saw faces laughing at him, calling him horrible, disgusting names from the walls, and hands pointing round the screen. Yet they were quite alone. But he began to talk aloud, answering people, arguing, laughing, crying, getting very excited, and making her write things down. Edgar, how, how, what do you think of... Virginia Woolf's depiction of shell shock in Mrs. Dalloway. Do you recognise it as an accurate description? Septimus Smith doesn't really present as a classic case of shell shock. He's got a few symptoms there which are elicited by the GP. He talks about him being uh, having sleep difficulties, nightmares, being anxious. 
And her initial description of him talks about apprehension in his eyes. So all that fits with shell shock. But then as we discover more about him, there are other symptoms which are much more typical of a psychotic illness. He's got uh, paranoid ideas. Um, he hears voices, auditory hallucinations, the word Evans being spoken. From what you know of Virginia Woolf and her descriptions mm -hmm. of, in this novel, do you, do you see parallels between her uh, condition and, and Septimus? It does sound like she's drawing on her own experiences, auditory hallucinations, you know, ideas of reference that ordinary things have a personal direct meaning for you and not anyone else around you. And maybe also that sense of paranoia, because they're not classic symptoms of shell shock. Alex, can I ask you about one of the things that's most well-known about Virginia Woolf is that she suffered herself from varying degrees of mental illness. And I wonder to what extent you think she's expressing her own experiences through this description of Septimus. Mm. I think one has to be really uh, careful about retrospectively diagnosing sure. people, but it's clear that she had severe periods of depression and also periods of, of, of mania, what we might describe as bipolar disorder, alongside other sorts of symptoms too. And there were times, I think, when she heard dead members of her family speaking to her and... Um, mm. And I think she, she also had difficult experiences with her doctors as well, didn't she? And found these rest cures that she was prescribed extremely difficult to cope with. But apparently this, this book deals with the horror of the medical profession not understanding. Um, it has terrible characterizations of the two doctors, Holmes and, and Bradshaw, who both want to categorise Septimus Warren-Smith and tell him to perk up. Cheer up, have a game of cricket, you're going to be all right. And Wolf had had that, she knew that. Um, and she also knew all about the forms of um, rescue which were prescribed and which were very, very controlling. Um, and she felt this horror of being controlled by people, people who had their hands over her brain and over her body, mm. um, and wanted to find a different language for illness so that people would not keep being told that they just needed to perk up. <laughs> um, she certainly characterises the doctors in the book as being insensitive and not really understanding the nature of shell shock. And that is a little unfair because a good number of those doctors who treated servicemen actually built up considerable expertise and many of them were very empathetic and could understand the trauma that the soldiers had been through, right. particularly Frederick Mott at the Maudsley, who was a very conscientious clinician as well as an international researcher. But I suppose she's picked two doctors, a GP, who's not had psychological training, right. and Sir George Savage, if, if that's who he is, who's coming to the end of his career. He's an old-fashioned sort of... Um, uh, so William Bradshaw is perhaps based on some, a real doctor called George well, Savage? Well, it's speculation, isn't right. it, that she was treated by Sir George Savage, who was one of the eminent men right. of the time. But he was not a shell-shocked doctor. He was coming to the end of his career. He's an eminent man in private practice. And his, his understanding would be of major mental illness, you know, really severe psychotic states. And the way he dismisses Septimus in a couple of minutes with a diagnosis of depression is, is pretty shameful. How common was this condition? Were there, were there many people affected by shell shock? Officially, it's around about 100,000 really? ex-servicemen get a war pension for shell shock. If you look at the whole war pension population, about 8 9% have got a psychiatric diagnosis. Oh, my goodness. But if, if you work out the number of people who were psychiatric casualties but didn't necessarily get a pension, you're looking at, at least a quarter of a million, maybe 300,000. So the vast majority weren't treated and were left to try to recover as best they could. How traumatic, gosh. So big numbers, large yeah, numbers. Yeah. There's a very poignant moment in her diary which she writes as she's working on Mrs. Dalloway uh, where she says, uh, in this book I have almost too many ideas. I want to give life and death, sanity and insanity. I want to criticise the social system and to show it at work at its most intense. But here I may be posing. Am I writing the hours from deep emotion? Of course, the mad part tries me so much, making my mind squint so badly that I can hardly face spending the next weeks at it. And I think you get that idea of having to squint her mind to look at this 
description of madness and how difficult that must have been for her having experienced it herself it's, it's raw it's coming absolutely from horrifying experience and yet she's displacing it I think this is one of the reasons that she gives her experience of illness to someone so unlike herself is that she it would be too dangerous and not artistically what mm. she wants to make to write directly about her own depression mm. Edgar today we talk about mental illness much more openly than we mm. used to but I wonder in the 1920s and you know at the time that Virginia Woolf was writing how was mental illness perceived differently and mm. um, how might she have felt herself perceived mm. at the time well there was of course enormous stigma of mental illness so wealthy families would try to treat uh, their, their children uh, privately they, they would try to keep them from going to the asylums because the asylums were perceived as being not the best places to go, or almost like sort of prisons. But I guess because she's a woman, there was also a strong cultural bias to assume that women were more right. disposed towards mental illness than men. So it would be interpreted as a, as a woman's ailment. Right. And the other thing they might also have thought was it was the pressure of modern life. That there's increasing interpretations of neurasthenia from the 1880s onwards affecting women and it's something to do with modern industrial society that's causing them to break down because uh, Henry Maudsley believed, for example, that women shouldn't go to medical school because they didn't have sufficient robustness to go through the training and they should focus all their energies on bringing up children. So these would be the ideas that were around that she'd broken down, maybe because she was taking on too much. She didn't have the innate strength of what was perceived as... I find that that so fascinating because we were talking earlier about how the changes of the modern world brought about changes in politics, in in culture, in relationships and in literature and and Woolf was very excited about the way that literature was changing as a result of modernism. Mm. Uh, But how interesting that there was a a, a kind of negative side to that change as well and that Mm. some people thought, as you say, that people weren't able to cope with that change. Mm. Maybe another thing to remember is, is it was never inevitable that she would write this great series of, of books. She was very, very ill through to 1915, and there were women in her family who had spent their lives in asylums. Her half-sister, Laura, um, was put away. And that was the shadow life of hers, it, which could very easily have happened, and it was terrifying. And she fought and fought back from it and found a way to work. Edgar, in your experience of descriptions of psychosis and mental illness in literature, how would you say this rates? Is this, a, is this of interest to you, this description in this book? It's definitely of interest, and I include it in my teaching, because I think it challenges students to think about the expression of distress. We believe that the way people convey how they're feeling, intense emotions, is conditioned by the society in which they live and the cultural icons, because you have to convey what you're feeling in a way that people are going to pick up and take seriously. And I think the book's important in that respect, that it works at two levels. It's showing how a soldier might convey his distress, but also how the author, Virginia Woolf, is conveying her sense of psychosis to the general public. Fantastic. Thank you. Well, Edgar, it's been such a pleasure uh, meeting you today and having you join us here in this cafe on the Broadwalk in Regent's Park. And uh, we're really grateful for your insights today. We're going to head off now towards Regent's Park Tube Station, just like Septimus and Retzia Smith. So we'll leave you here. But thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks. So we've jumped in a cab now heading over to Bloomsbury and Tavistock Square. I wonder if this would be a good moment to talk about Clarissa Dalloway's sexuality in in the book. Why are you putting sex in the back of the cab, Henry? (laughs) (laughs) But it's a sexy book. It is, sort of surprisingly. And she has a complicated relationship with sex, doesn't she? Because there's, there's a moment where she's described as having retained a kind of virginity that was wrapped around her like a sheet. And people can see her as quite sexless. 
There is a, a strand of sadness in this book about n- not being in love with your husband, um, about going up to a, a single bed, feeling a little bit nun-like, it was all over for her, yes. and seeing seeing Peter absolutely radiant with love and thinking that's not her. But it's also a really erotic book in what it brings up from the memories of, yes. of, of, of a kiss with Sally Seaton, a moment long ago when she really did feel sexually and knows what it's all about. Alice, would you read that section because it is such a powerful bit. Then came the most exquisite moment of her whole life passing a stone urn with flowers in it. Sally stopped, picked a flower, kissed her on the lips. The whole world might have turned upside down. And there's an exclamation yeah. mark. Wolf doesn't often allow herself that, but it's just an absolutely direct moment yeah. of sexual pleasure. And this is the life that Clarissa didn't lead. Right. And this book is is very interested in all those parallel lives that we hold within ourselves. She made a choice and she's having a good life. Um, But there's also this alternative. And I think the alternative was showing itself to Wolf very strongly in 1923, 1924. She's starting a flirtation with uh, the writer, slightly younger than herself, Rita Sackville West, who's gay, very openly so, and, and... married to mm-hmm. Leonard but it's clearly a flirtation it's clearly exciting the letters are starting to become full of the language of bodily adventure and they're making a private world together and it feels I think to Wolf like a new beginning a new possibility what is this like mm. and and part of her digging up those feelings about Sally comes from Wolf finding at middle age an, another form of love Go on. Uh, whereabouts in Tavistock Square would you like? This is it. Oh, is it? Oh, perfect. Well, if you could just go to the opposite corner. To, if you turn, can you turn right here? Um, how about uh, if I go through this line to yep. stop on the left? Just yeah, that's there. perfect. Thank you. I think you can feel in, in some of the ravishing descriptions of, of London that charge that comes with a, a new relationship of just everything yes. being lit up again. And she's yes. looking at old things and she's, um, she's thinking of going, coming back to London where, which she's known all her life and yet with this, this new excitement to it. I love that description where she's remembering how passionately she felt about Sally. And she says... Uh, there was a moment when she was standing in her bedroom at Borton, at the top of the house, holding the hot water can in her hands and saying aloud, she is beneath this roof, she is beneath this roof. And that kind of childish but also exuberant feeling of, gosh, I'm in the same location as someone I love. It's extraordinary. And I, what's interesting to me about that is that um, Quentin Bell, her nephew, remembered a moment when Virginia Woolf did that very same thing when uh, she was in the same house as the woman called Madge Simmons and he, he remembers her gripping the handle of the water jug in the top room at Hyde Park Gate and exclaiming to herself, Madge is here at this moment, she is actually under this roof. So there's a moment there, perhaps, of a genuine autobiographical memory. Which other writer shows us absolute erotic thrill through the picture of someone stock still holding a water water can Um, and there's something lovely about that ordinariness the way that totally daily things are what gets transformed by human relationships and they are transformed aren't they because that is such a emotive moment you really feel that excitement with her there you go cheers have a good evening you're welcome thank you thanks We're standing now in Tavistock Square. We've just missed being allowed into the garden. See, the the man with the bell was going around locking up. But we're standing just by the railings near a memorial bust of Virginia Woolf, which we can see through the gloaming. Uh, It was a a bust designed by her her friend, Stephen Tomlin, and uh, put up by the Virginia Woolf Society in 2004. And the reason it's here is that this is the square where Virginia and Leonard Woolf lived for much of their married life. Unfortunately, the house was bombed during the Blitz, and in 1940 it was destroyed, which had a huge uh, impact on Woolf herself. And in its place is this enormous Tavistock Hotel, which takes up the whole of the south side of this square. But before we approach the hotel, Alex, could you... 
describe the house to us. So we're looking now at you know the south side of a square. It, architecturally, it's not a lot to write home about, but what would it have been like when the wolves were here? Mm, well, they're, they're tall, smart, 1820s townhouses, uh, essentially classical with dark London brick and big sash windows. Uh, and they all have basements. And the basement was crucial in this case because right. they put the Hogarth press in the basement. It's a very heavy, the, the <laughs> printing press is jolly heavy, so they're best to put them on the, on the lowest <laughs> yeah. floor. Um, and so th- there was a lot of coming and going from the basement. Uh, and in the back room, there was an old billiards room, or right. sort of games place, which Wolf adopted as her writing location and she would just light the little gas fire there and be in a very tatty armchair and put a a big drawing board over her knees and she was lost in into the writing and you disturbed her at your peril at that point (laughs) and she was terrifically romantic about all these Bloomsbury squares and loved to see the lamplight on this moment that we're standing in now in the in the dusk and and the lights are coming on in the sash windows of, of Tavistock Square and it makes me feel that this is this is one of the times of day that Wolf really responded to yeah. this shift from the daylight time into the evening, the lamplight, the secret places, um, the sense of, of parties going on behind closed doors, people going home to their, their worlds. And there's a swelling, magnificent description of evening coming over London. And at this point in the novel, we're... We're in company with Peter Walsh, who's going to be going on to Clarissa's party. And we, we walk with him and we're feeling the evening come down. And here we go. Like a woman who had slipped off her print dress and white apron to array herself in blue and pearls, the day changed. Put off stuff, took gauze, changed to evening. And with the same sigh of exhilaration that a woman breathes, tumbling petticoats on the floor, it too shed dust, heat, colour. The traffic thinned. Motor cars, tinkling, darting, succeeded the lumber of vans. And here and there, among the thick foliage of the squares, an intense light hung. But now and again emerging, when through an uncurtained window, the window left open, one saw parties sitting over tables, young people slowly circling, conversations between men and women, maids idly looking out, stockings drying on top ledges, a parrot, a few plants, absorbing, mysterious, of infinite richness, this life. I feel like, you know, the years between... 1923 and now have just melted away. And gosh, that moment describing the hotels and the, and, the, and the towers and the buildings against the sky, I mean, we're literally looking at it now. That captures that optimism that's at the heart of Clarissa's vision of London, isn't it? Now, um, towards the end of the novel, Peter Walsh returns to his hotel in Bloomsbury to get ready to go to Mrs Dalloway's party. And uh, although the hotel is unnamed, rather conveniently, there is now the Tavistock Hotel on the site of where Virginia Woolf lived in Tavistock Square. And rather brilliantly, or, or, or terribly, depending on your view, the bar of this hotel is called the Wolf and Whistle, spelt with two O's. Um, and so I'm hoping we might be able to uh, make our way inside there. We're in this uh, rather noisy bar, uh, which is a perfect place to talk about a party. But let's, uh, let's get somewhere slightly less noisy, or get our drinks and then head outside. All the way through this book, we know that the climax is going to be the party, Clarissa's party, which she keeps reminding people not to forget, keeps... Uh, uh, preparing for throughout the day, Alex, would you would you take us to the party? Tell tell us what is this party like? Well, we experience the moment of anxiety when people are just just assembling, but not quite yet sure of the atmosphere. And Clarissa has this sense of her past arriving around her, and for a moment she thinks it's all going to be a failure. These people won't come together, and then she sees wind blows out the curtain and she sees across the room a man beating it back and she knows in that instant it's not a failure after all 
It's brilliant. It's such a, it's such a familiar thought, isn't it? I think everyone, when they host a party, is worried it's not going to work and people aren't going to get on. And there is a, always that sort of moment, moment in the balance. And then... But how do you define that yes, moment? Yes. And that sort of fugitive thing, which has no empirical fact to which you could attach it, is something that Wolf just wants to catch. Um, and then the party builds and builds and the Prime Minister arrives. This right. is, a, this is a, a well-heeled party. We actually have the Prime Minister and, and Clarissa is moving on a tide across the room as she introduces the Prime Minister to people. But why, why is it that this serious avant-garde book is, is finding its centre at, a, at an establishment social party? It's a very strange thing. But Clarissa feels very deeply what she's trying to do, and it's an act of creation, that she'll bring people together in a way that a writer might bring together ideas in her novel, in a way that Wolf is bringing together Septimus, Clarissa, Peter, and Clarissa's form of art is to make parties, to make a room, a space, an atmosphere in which totally different people can somehow meet each other. There was a moment uh, in Leonard Wolf's memoir, Downhill All the Way, where he he writes that the idea of a party always excited her. And in practice, she was very sensitive to the actual mental and physical excitement of the party itself, the rise of temperature of mind and body, the ferment and fountain of noise. And without giving too much away, she has this moment where she says, oh, here's death, she thought, come into the middle of her party. And for a moment, the whole sort of illusion of the party falls around her and she goes off into a separate room to think about this death that she's just heard about and she imagines it very viscerally doesn't she? Exactly, she thinks it through and we're aware as she thinks it through how close she has come to thinking about her own death, perhaps even to dying Um, when she started writing this book Wolf thought that it was Mrs Dalloway herself who would die and she changes the plot she makes Mrs Dalloway the eponymous heroine the survivor in this book but the survivor who has somehow to look at the reality of death to take it on board and to do that by imagining it through, through powerful empathy and it's as if those two people are one in that moment. These people who have, have never met life and death somehow existing in the, in the same body. And she walks back into the room and all she has to do is to have survived that. She just has to stand there and Peter sees her. And it's Clarissa, for there she stood. And it's as simple as that. You need to do nothing more than simply to have thought of death and to have survived and lived on. To be in the music and the party again is enough. And that's the final line. There she was. And she's the survivor standing at the end. I think it's important that it's Peter who sees her. Right. It's not Clarissa standing there for herself. It's other people who need her to be there and the final statement perhaps is that the presence of other human beings brings us together allows us to organize our lives and that all the people at that party are somehow made one by that final reappearance of their host Clarissa. fabulous fabulous well alex i've so enjoyed walking around the london of mrs dalloway with you today it's been such a pleasure and thank you so much and for from joining you, thank us. Thank you for the conversation. It's been brilliant. Many thanks to Alexandra Harris, Edgar Jones, and Hatchard's Bookshop, and to our kind partners, Penguin Classics. I'm Henry Elliott. The producer is Andrea Rangecroft, and the music is by Don Gould. If you enjoyed this episode of On the Road with Penguin Classics, please spread the word and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. One last thing. Virginia Woolf was so delighted when Mrs. Dalloway began selling surprisingly well that she decided to have some renovations done on her home in Sussex, Monk's House. She had a new bathroom built and two new WCs, one of which became known affectionately as Mrs. Dalloway's Lavatory.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.